Yeah, the greatest thing I've done, apart from becoming Christian, is Mary Bethany. I remember being here in Montgomery, and we would get to go. We had a, an annual pass to the zoo, and I'd take off at AP for lunch, and we'd go over there to eat lunch at the zoo, and just had so many wonderful, wonderful experiences. Had our children here, and got to raise them many years. I guess our oldest was, about, I guess, about six when we left, or seven, and just we were driving down. Perry Hill, just thinking about all the memories and fun and great times that we had and all the people that we've known and all the fellowship that we've had with the church here in this area and just thrilling. So fun to be back and so, so much encouraged by what has happened here at Delreda for so many years. It's just thrilling. I was at Eastern Meadows when VP Black was in the last years of his preaching. I often got to take him to do gospel meetings and things of that nature. I would drive him and he would tell me stories about things that had happened in his preaching. And one of the stories he told was very interesting. He said it was the first time he had ever been asked to preach on giving and stewardship. Now, if you knew anything about VP Black, you knew that he had written, I think, some 12 books on stewardship at the time I was talking to him, had preached on it for probably 45 years or so. And he was telling me about the first time he preached on the topic, and he said an older preacher of his, older preacher friend of his had said, Brother Black, do you preach on stewardship and giving and money? And he was a young preacher in his 20s. He was at a smaller rural congregation, and he said to this older friend of his, I didn't know the Bible said much about that. And the preacher said, yeah, the Bible's full of stuff on stewardship and money. You need to get your lesson up on it. And so he started doing some research and realized, it, sure enough, it's it, filled with discussions of money, like we talked about in class, 1,400 different verses, one out of two parables of Jesus, one out of six verses in the New Testament. And he really got excited about it and realized, oh, wow, the Bible says all kinds of stuff about giving and stewardship, and I've never preached on it. I need to be preaching the whole counsel of God, and so I'm going to preach this first lesson on it. And he said at the time, he was very excited because he was dating this young lady and he felt like this lesson was pretty new and exciting and would be impressive. And he was going to pick her up for the Sunday service. So he picked her up and ultimately she became his wife. But she was there as, as his you know kind of church date and he was preaching his first lesson on stewardship and giving. And he stood up and he started preaching on money. He preached every other Sunday at that congregation. There was another student preacher in his 20s that was preaching the other two Sundays and Brother Black gets done with his lesson on money and they didn't have elders. They were operated by a men's meeting type thing and he said the man that was basically self-appointed in charge of the men's meeting type stuff stood up after he preached and said, Brother Black has been preaching here for us every other Sunday. We'll have someone else to take his spot from now on. Fired him publicly on the spot came to him after and said, you are meddling. You should not preach about money. That's something that should never be heard from the pulpit. And if you're ever going to do anything worth doing in the Lord's church and preaching, you need to stop preaching on money right now. Brother Black said, well, if that's the way the brotherhood is going to think about preaching on money, then I'm going to preach on it every chance I get. So he did. Started preaching on money, had, I mean, probably had 40 lessons on stewardship and giving. Like I said, wrote 12 books. Well, he got fired from that congregation, but of course he was a very 
Uh, he was an outstanding preacher, and he had been invited to preach a gospel meeting not far from that congregation. And his friend had stood up at that congregation and said, I'm going to listen to VP Black preach, and anybody that wants to come with me can. I'll be driving, and you can just meet me here at the church. Well, the guy who fired him said he wanted to come and hear Brother Black preach the gospel meeting. So he and his friend, uh, the VP Black's friend, and this guy drive to the meeting. Brother Black stands up, preaching the gospel meeting, said, tonight what we're discussing is stewardship and money. So he preaches this gospel meeting lesson on stewardship money. His friend was reporting this back to him as he was telling me. And he said, he said that man who had fired him got in that car and was just basically red-faced and angry. He said he couldn't even say anything for 10 minutes. And finally said, oh, that VP Black will never amount to anything. He said, I told him to quit preaching on money and he's still at it. Now, Brother Black kind of chuckled at that. He said, the Lord gets all the credit for anything I've ever done. He said, but I've been preaching on, on stewardship and giving for the last 45, 50 years. And we just took a, a very rough estimate of what the Lord's church has given in excess to what they were giving before I started preaching on giving and stewardship. And, and he said, it's upwards of about $100 million. And the Lord gets all the credit, but preaching on stewardship and giving has been one of the greatest blessings of my life and has been basically my call. Do you know some people... They just misunderstand why God talks about giving and they think it's because God wants something out of them. They think it's because God's trying to take something from them. Like if you really did what the Bible says, then your life would be worse. And if you understood what the teaching on giving and stewardship was, then it would be that you were missing out on something. And you know, it's interesting to me, lots of times I have, I have seen a lot of preachers. They'll approach giving and they'll, Get up. Generally speaking, it's in it's in January sometime. And normally they might even be kind of charismatic about the preaching as far as being excited and enthused, but they'll get up and they'll say, Well, you know, it's the beginning of the year. And the elders, they always make sure to say the elders have assigned them the topic because they want you to know they never pick it on their own. You know, the elders have assigned me the topic of giving. And we got to do this. And, you know, just uh, I, I know it's not something you guys like to talk about all that much. But, you know, we'll, we'll get through it next 25 minutes. Just stick with me. We've got to preach the whole council. And so let's let's just get through our lesson on giving. We can get back to real real preaching. And they apologize to you for standing up and preaching on stewardship and giving. That is the most wrong-headed ridiculous way to approach one of the most exciting subjects in the Bible that I've ever seen. And what's interesting to me is you don't even have to be a member of the Lord's Church or Christian or religious in any way to recognize the benefit of a generous liberal giver. There's a book out there titled, Who Really Cares?, and the guy who wrote this book said initially he was going to see if conservative-minded politically thinkers gave more money than liberal-minded political thinkers. He said that was his thesis. And what he was actually going to try to prove was that liberal-minded political people give just as much as conservative religious people when they give to charitable places. And he said, you know, in the research I found out that that's not true in any category that conservative religious people give more than anybody in the country. He said, but that wasn't the, 
the thing that was so amazing to me. He said, what was amazing to me, and like I said, this guy did, I don't even think this guy was a Christian at all. And he was trying to show that Christianity has nothing whatsoever to do with giving or anything like that. He said, what was amazing to me was that I found a direct correlation between people's success in life, their happiness, their satisfaction with their position where they are, and their generosity. He said, you can take two people that have the same education, the same demographic, the same everything, and one of them's generous and one of them's not, and the generous person is going to say they are happy, they're excited about life, and they are going to be more financially successful than the non-generous, non-giving person who is going to say, basically, they're miserable, and they wish their life was better, and... You know, he said, and we'll get into a little bit of this, but he said, and on average, the person who is generous is making demographics all the same, $16,000 more every year than the one who's not. He said, lots of times, nonprofit organizations, he's just talking about nonprofit in general, they stand before a group of people and they act like they have to beg for money. He said, that should never be the approach. That when you offer somebody a chance to be a part of something bigger than they are, and what's bigger than the Lord's church? Nothing. That you are giving them the opportunity to be happy and satisfied and feel complete with their life that they can't get anywhere else. Hey guys, sorry I'm about to tell you the way that you can be the happiest you can be in this life. You don't apologize for stuff like that. You say, guys, let me explain to you the opportunity that has been placed before us that we can be more excited about living, we can be more prosperous emotionally and most of the time financially, and we can have a better relationship with God, a better relationship with others, and lots of it stems from how you deal with money. Now, I believe that there's a singular decision that you can make this morning that would change your life for the rest of it and would ultimately carry on your blessings into eternity. Do you want to have more blessings and have a better life? You know, I've asked that question a lot. I've never, ever had anybody say, no, you know, I, I just I feel blessed enough. I mean, I, I don't really want anything else for my kids to be that I'm just, I'm, I'm doing good, thanks. But in fact, we could shave a few blessings off of what I got. Nobody says that. Everybody wants to have a more blessed life. Now, I think lots of us would be very content and feel like we're very blessed. But if you said, hey, would, would you like more emotional happiness and satisfaction? And more? Everybody wants that. And so let's see one very good way that we can move in that direction. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And you're going to read a verse that explains to you what is going to be the process with your satisfaction and, and money and giving. Here's what it says. Honor the Lord with your possessions and the first fruits of your increase so that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats may overflow with new grape juice, is what the text says. So he gives you a principle of, all right, if you will honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first of everything that you have, 
then the corresponding result of that will be you will be more blessed. Now, that so that your vats will overflow with new grape juice, your barns will be filled with grain. He's talking about how they would view financial blessings. But of course, it's not limited to that in any way. What he's saying is, if you first give to God, then everything about your life that you would feel like needs more, your emotional state, your relationships with other people, your financial situation, lots of times, you're going to receive blessings in virtually every aspect of your life if you understand what you need to do with money. Now, we're going to go to Malachi, and we're going to spend most of our time there. Malachi chapter 3. Of course, the way that I find Malachi always is turn to Matthew, first page, and then flip back. That gets you right to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. The Israelites in Malachi's day have been having a real problem. They have started to look at giving as a burden, as a nuisance. In chapter 1, you see that they're bringing God lame animals as sacrifices. They're not giving God what He's asked them to give. And they're saying that the Lord's altar is a pain and that they've got other stuff they want to do with their money. Why do they have to give this stuff to God, etc.? And he really gets to the heart of it in chapter 3. And you look right there in verse 8. And the way Malachi preaches, it's very interesting. He asks questions that seem like there's a rhetorical answer, but the people, when they're giving the rhetorical answer, they're actually behaving in a way that they don't answer. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. The first statement there, will a man rob God? Now, like I say, rhetorical question... You know, a rhetorical question is one that's asked for emphasis and not for information. When I was growing up, my dad would say, son, do you want a spanking? Was he seeking information? You know, did he think, today I believe that Kyle is wanting a spanking, and so I'm going to give him the opportunity to say yes today. I, I know he probably wouldn't come out with this on his own, but son, do, do, you, do you want a spanking? No. Nobody wants a spanking. And now when my dad says, son, do you want a spanking? The rhetorical answer, the answer for emphasis and not information is you don't want a spanking. You understand you don't want one. I understand you don't want one. Now, why was he asking the question? Son, do you want a spanking? We both know you don't, but the behavior you're involving yourself in will get you one. So stop what you're doing or you're going to get what you don't want. We understand Okay, so when the text says, will a man rob God? What is the Israelite nation who is listening to Malachi's message thinking about that? You, you don't rob God. You don't steal from God. And there's a couple good reasons that you don't steal from God. Number one, if you're a bank robber, and you know for a fact that there is a bank that the second you step over the threshold of the door, they're going to know everything about you. They're going to know exactly where you live. They're going to know exactly all of your personal information. And not only are they going to know everything about you, regardless of what mask you wear, regardless of how fast you get in and out, they have the security measures by which when you walk out of that bank, the second you step out the door, they're going to be able to apprehend you. They know who you are. They're going to catch you when you walk in and walk out. Do you ever rob a bank that you know you're going to get caught? 
Now, let me take a step. I, I hope you guys were thinking, well, I don't ever rob a bank. Okay, that's where I hope you were going with that. But for illustrative purposes, would anybody rob a bank where they know they're getting caught? You don't rob banks where you know you're getting caught. Will a man rob God? What's the rhetorical answer to that? No. So it's going to be shocking to them. Like if someone said, do you want a spanking? And you're like, no. But you're behaving in a way you're going to get one. So the next thing is, will a man rob God? And then Malachi says, but you are. But you are robbing God. What if I were to stand up here today and I'm going to say, I believe probably in every audience that I've ever been a part of, someone was guilty of what's going on in, in this passage. Now, let's get personal. I mean, somebody was. Will a man rob God? The rhetorical answer is no. And yet Malachi says, but you are. What's the next thing that you're thinking if Malachi is preaching this today to you? How? How am I stealing from God? I don't know if, if this happens at your congregation. I, I, I hope not. I have heard that it has happened in other places. Now, the, the basket is not necessarily passed. It's more uh, set out there. And you put. And I, I like this way better because I always kind of felt like there was a little pressure. that I, You know, I had heard some people, they would, they would put a blank check in and not write anything on it just so people would think that they were giving. And, you know, we could talk about that from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about that. But I always liked the, the process of, well, let's just put it up there. But... I was talking to somebody where they used to pass the plate and they said, yeah, there's pretty pretty much common knowledge that there's one lady that sits down front and she makes change and she gets more out than she puts in. I mean, you ever made change in the plate and got more out than you put in? You know, I, I have known of, of places and people where one guy was in charge. He and, he and his wife were in charge of counting the money and depositing the bank and there wasn't a checks and balance system going on there and they thought that they needed to make a loan to themselves for just a little bit of money at first, and then they started taking more and more and embezzling, I think, above $50,000. They, they were stealing from God. Now, let me ask you a question. You know, I'm, I'm, pri I'm thinking that the people in Malachi's day were thinking, well, we don't chip gold off of the temple. We don't take money from the, the priest when they're not looking. How are we stealing from God? Will a man rob God? The supposed to be the answer is no, yet you have robbed him. Their next question is, in what way have we robbed him? And here's his statement. I want you to read it for yourself. In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now, if you weren't here for the class, you've got to understand the principle we laid down, and that's why that has to come first, that everything is God's and that you are a steward of God's stuff. And if you're a steward of God's stuff and God asks for a certain amount of it back and you don't give it to Him, what have you done? Stolen His stuff. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this. Well, yeah, this is Old Testament tithes and offerings, but that doesn't come over to the New Testament. That, well, let's take a, a, a real close look at what the New Testament teaches about percentages. Now, the New Testament does teach that you should give a certain percent. And here's what I mean by that. It says that you should give as you have prospered. 
Now that means that a person who gives, who has a million dollars should give more than a person who has a hundred dollars. Now, so if you say to a person who has a hundred, if, if a person who has a hundred dollars gives 20 bucks, do you think they're generous? Yes, because they've given out they have prospered. If a person who has a million dollars gives 20 bucks, do you think they're generous? No, because that's not as they have prospered. Now, what you need to understand about giving is giving always has been on a percentage basis. Now, here's what's exciting about that. Lots of the stuff you get into financially is not on a percentage basis, and it doesn't matter what you make. You're going to be stuck with what you've got. Let me tell you what I mean. You go down to buy a car and that car is X number of dollars and they tell you your payment is $500 a month. They don't care if you bring in $1,000 that month. They don't care if you bring in $10,000 that month. You're paying them $500. It's not a percentage-based deal. What God is saying is when He says you give as you have prospered is, guess what? If you only made $1,000 this week, then what you gave would be different than somebody who made $5,000 this week. Or if you only made $500 this week, what you would give would be Different than somebody who made $5,000 this week. Give as you have been prospered means you decide a percentage of what you're going to give. That's what it means. Has always meant. So the question is, well, what percentage does God want from me? You know, we looked at the rich young ruler in class and we assessed the fact that God wants you to be willing to give every bit of it. All of it. But practically speaking, that, that's not that's not doable on a practical basis because let's say you gave every single dime that you have right now. Well, tomorrow, if you have a job, you'll make more. Do you know in the Bible, there are only three places, in the New Testament, there are only three places where a percentage is ever mentioned. You've got Mark chapter 12, and you have a widow who comes to the temple and she gives less than a cent. And Jesus Christ draws his disciples' attention to what she has given and says, this woman has given more than anybody else today. Well, they knew she gave a tiny, tiny amount of money. But the percentage was, what percentage did she give? For she has given everything. She gave 100%. The rich young ruler gave well, we know he gave at least 10% because he was following the old law and Jesus asked for all of it and he wouldn't give it to him. Jesus asked the rich young ruler for 100%. The only other percentage you've got in the New Testament is Zacchaeus when he eats with Jesus at that dinner that Jesus calls him to at his house and he says, I give 50% of everything that I make and Jesus Christ says, today the kingdom of heaven or salvation has come to your house. Do you know there are three places in the New Testament that talk about percentages? Two of them is 100%, one of them is 50 The idea that in the Old Testament they gave 10%, but in the New Testament, you know right now just, just from any group of people that call themselves Christians in the United States of America right now, here's the stat. Any group of people that call themselves Christians, 18% of them give zero. Almost one out of five people who call themselves Christians don't give any. 8% of people give 10% at least or more. 8% of them. So that leaves you 92% that don't give at least 10% of their income and most of them are giving 2 to 4% of their income. And, I mean, if we had time, we could go back and look at the book of Haggai where God talks about how much are you spending on your house? In the United States of America, most 
Most Americans are spending 25% of their income on their houses and giving less than 2%, people who call themselves Christians to their God, and lots of times they're spending more on their pet than they are on giving. I think that the average person that has an indoor pet is looking at 2 to 3%, and I think sometimes upward to 5% of their income on taking care of their indoor pet or pets in general. Okay, so, you, so if Malachi is preaching to us, you know what else is very interesting? People who make $75,000 or more, only 1% of people who make $75,000 or more is giving 10% of their income. People who make $20,000 or less, 8% of them are giving 10% or more of their income. The more money you make, the less you give as it looks on paper to the average member, of the average person who calls him or herself a Christian. Now, can you imagine that in the Old Testament they were commissioned to give one-tenth to God? But then that wasn't all that they gave. They were supposed to leave the corners of their fields. They were supposed to give free will offerings and sin offerings. They were supposed to three times a year have a feast that that didn't count the 10%. They were giving about, if you add it all up, about 30% of their income. But God doesn't even go into all of that. But He says in tithes and offerings. So He's recognizing that, okay, let's say they were giving their 10%. They're still having those offerings. So listen, there's no place in the Bible ever where a person is commended for being a generous liberal giver who was giving less than 10% of their total income. Now, now let me repeat that. No place in the Bible ever where a person who is commended for being generous and a scriptural generous giver when they were giving less than 10% of their income. Now, you look at the rich young ruler. He's given 10%. What's his problem still? He still loves money more than God. So are we saying, hey, look, you give 10%, you're, you're golden. 10%, let's say you're making a million dollars, you give 10%, there's nothing else you have to do. Here's what I believe the New Testament is teaching. That in the Old Testament, 10% was the, the floor at which you started scriptural generous giving. And you grow in your Christian grace of generosity from that point. That's what I believe the scriptures are teaching. Now you start looking at that and say, Kyle, uh, I, I don't like this. I, I don't like where you're going with this. That's not what I do. And I, okay, let, let me throw this at you. I, I was just talking about this with my wife just this morning. She said, well, you know, I was watching a show not long ago where you would pair people up with financial advisors. One of them was Dave Ramsey, I think. One of them was Susie Orman or something like that. And there were several financial advisors. And she said several of these people had no faith-based teaching whatsoever. Dave Ramsey was the only faith-based teacher. But she said every single one of them, every one of them said you should give at least 10% of your income to some charitable organization so that you tell your money that you are in charge of it and it's not in charge of you. And you do that first. You don't do it after you do everything else. Makes perfect sense. 
Now, let's look at what God is trying to get these people to understand. You're acting like it's a burden. You're acting like it's a problem. You're acting like I'm trying to get you to miss out on something, to get you to have less of something, to get you to, to be burdened with giving. Missing the whole point. Watch what he said. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and prove me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. All right, now, now stop right there. Here's what he says the solution is. Here's what he says the solution is. Start giving right. Now, I, I've got to go back to Haggai. I've got to because it's just a few pages back there. Haggai had the same problem that a lot of his folks weren't giving right. And he said, start giving right. And after he preaches his lesson on stewardship and giving, they do. They say, oh, we've been wrong. We've been building our own houses and we've not been building the temple. We're going to start. Now, here's what Haggai says in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed still in the barn as yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit? But from this day forward, I'll bless you. He said, your stuff hadn't even grown yet. But mark down the date. Now, he's not saying try to remember back vaguely to that day that you did. He says, mark down the date. The 24th day of the ninth month. The day that you say, I will never not give to God what He wants. You write that day down. And you go back and ask yourself from that day on, has your life been blessed in ways that you couldn't even imagine? And God says, it will be that day that you made that decision and put it into practice. Now let me tell you what I have been thrilled to see. People who have listened to, heard what God was saying from the Bible about stewardship, they have, I've seen it a number of times because of the power of the word of this teaching, they have come back to me and they've said, listen, you were here four years ago and you teach this stuff that God is teaching us on giving. And they said, my wife and I got home and we decided we were going to start giving scripturally. And they said, from that day, let me tell you what has happened. Here's why it's so thrilling to me. I believe it's a practical decision that you can make that you'll never forget that will bring immediate blessings into your life. Am I talking about emotional blessings? Absolutely. Am I talking about spiritual blessings? Absolutely. Oftentimes it's even physical, financial blessings. You will look at that day and say that's the best thing we ever did in our spiritual life if we're not doing it. Now, in the afternoon lesson, we're going to see why giving a certain amount of physical stuff has any bearing on your physical, financial, spiritual situation. Why does God even ask you to do it? But right now, what you need to know is God is saying, okay, I want you to test me. Do you know there's only one place in all the Bible, going back to Malachi, only one place in all the Bible where God says, test me. This is it. You know what God is saying? Here's what He's saying. You guys don't believe this. I know that there are a lot of you out there in Malachi's day and probably today and I'm trying to tell you that I'm going to bless you in ways that you can't even imagine and you don't believe it. But here's the thing. He says, just give me a chance 
to show you. Now, you never reap a field before you plant it. You never get the benefit of any investment before you put money in it. It always comes after it. There's a whole lesson I've got on reaping and sowing we won't get to, but it, it always comes after Now, several years ago, it was a hospital just down the road here when we had our firstborn, no, our second, our second child, Anna Claire. And my parents came in from Columbia and my dad was sitting on the floor there in this room where we had been moved out. And it was kind of a suite type deal where we had a couch and a place for everybody to kind of come in and visit. It wasn't just the, the delivery room. And I think it was about three days, two, three days after our daughter was born and we've got the video camera going and we're getting everybody on film and stuff. And my dad is sitting on the floor and my oldest son was 20 months old at the time around there, almost two. And he's climbing up on the couch and he's jumping off to my dad. And he does that and he starts laughing and giggling and I'm thinking, oh, this is something to get on tape. So I, I zoom in on my dad catching my son and it's exciting and fun. And then dad gets distracted. And somebody's talking to him and dad puts his arms up and he looks over here and, and somebody's talking to him. But Drew doesn't see that dad's distracted and so he gets back up there. He sees my dad's arms out and he jumps. Dad doesn't catch him. Bam! Hits his head on the floor. Not hard. I mean, the couch was only about that high. Gets up crying. You know, he's got a little place on his head. My dad realizes he just dropped his grandson. And I mean, if this is going to be remedied, he's going to have to do something. So he gives him hugs. And, and then he puts him back up on that couch and asks him to jump again. You know, what's a 20-month-old who just jumped into somebody's arm that dropped him do to a person that asked to... No, Drew's up there shaking his head. He will not jump again. Look, if you ever jump and don't get caught, you never jump again. What God is saying is, okay, look, you guys are standing here holding on to the stuff I've entrusted you with. You're stealing. It's my stuff anyway. This shouldn't even be discussed. If I ask for it back, you just give it to me. It's mine. But what I'm telling you is, I'll bless you more than you've ever thought if you'll just start giving it to me right. But there's only one way you'll ever know if I am going to do that. And you know what that is? You have to jump. You would have to say, I will never give to God less than 10% of my income from here on out. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I believe if you would do that, you would write down that day as the day you changed your spiritual, emotional, and sometimes even often your financial situation. I believe that that's exactly what the Bible is teaching. But you'll never be able to do that if you don't jump. Now what God is saying is, just give me a shot. You ever uh, taught a kid to swim? I did. Taught, taught my kids. Uh, I say I did. We did. We had a swimming pool. Bethany and I, we wanted them swimming at an early age, so we, we tried to teach them. I'm just thinking about when, when I would have them down at the Y and I would put them on the side of the pool and I would tell them to jump over to me and you could see the fear in their eyes. They literally thought that they were going to drown and die. I mean, it's, this, it's from here to here. Okay, guys, 
You're not going to die. I promise that I will catch you. There's no way that you're... They didn't believe me. They would not jump forever. And I'm talking into it. You, you ever tried to teach a kid to swim? H have you... Not, did you know they could come up with so many excuses as to, well, I have to go to the bathroom. Okay. Well, you know, mom's probably over there. She probably wants to, I mean, try to talk you out of it. Try to say everything. They're not jumping. They think you're literally trying to kill them. And then they jump. And they give a little dog paddle. I, last time you let them go for just a minute. And then you grab them. And they realize, hey, not only did I not die, but listen, there's a whole swimming pool here that I have just figured out. This is opening new opportunities for me. I could be swimming like those people do. Do you know who loves preaching on giving? Who loves preaching on giving the most? People who are generous, scriptural, liberal givers who have realized that it's blessing their life. You know, lots of times there'll be a person who's given 10, 15, 20, 25% of their income and they will say, man, sure appreciated that lesson. You know what? I think there's an opportunity for me to give more. You know who hates preaching on giving? People who have not studied and obeyed the Bible's teaching on giving. Because they haven't gotten those blessings and they don't, they can't say from experience that is true. I have never, never in my life, never, and I don't think you will either, met somebody that said, man, I started giving generously. I just didn't like it. Now I'm going back. Uh, but, you know, it just, I just, just didn't make, I've never met anybody that does that. Now, here's what the Bible's saying. Jump. And what does God promise to you that he'll do? Folks, it's a promise. He says, I know a lot of you don't believe it. And so just give me a, a chance to prove it to you. Just jump and see, look at the rest of that verse. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Who wants so many blessings that they can't even handle them all? Who wants that? I do. Well, here's how you do that. Recognize that it's God's money, that if you're keeping more back than He wants you to, you're stealing it. Give it to him with a good attitude, and he says, Hey, this should have been going along. This should have been what was happening all, all along, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless you more than you have ever been blessed before in your life. Now, let me tell you why this is important. It's important because God is a giver, and He knows that the only way for you to have the kind of life and joy and happiness that He wants for you is if you be more like Him. And the Bible explains to us that though Jesus Christ was rich, He became poor so that we might have the riches of eternal glory. You know what that's saying? Jesus Christ was sitting in heaven surrounded by everything good that you could possibly imagine. If you could think about what wealth would do for a person in any conceivable way, Jesus is the richest person in the... You, you can't even say universe. He's the, he has everything. And He says, 
I will give it to come down and be poor. So poor that he doesn't own a place to lay his head. He doesn't have a, a tomb that he even owns. He's got to borrow one. At the end of his life, he doesn't own a stitch of clothing. When the Bible says that Jesus became poor, what that means is he came to a little poor family that didn't even have enough to buy a lamb as a sacrifice for their firstborn son. They had to buy two turtle doves because the Old Testament said, if you're so poor you can't give a lamb, then you can give a couple birds. Jesus never owns a house his whole life. Doesn't even have a place he can lay his head. At the end of his life, they take every stitch of clothing he's got and he's in a buried, he gets buried in a borrowed tomb. So that you could become rich. And the riches that we're dealing with are spiritual, everlasting, eternal riches. God wants, to be, wants you to be a generous giver because that's what He is. And He knows that when you give, you become a different person. And, and let me end with this. I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, here's what the text is going to tell you about what God really wants. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, rather. God doesn't care about your money. In fact, He tells you it's just a test to see what you really do with real spiritual blessings. God doesn't feel like He needs your stuff. Here's what God is looking for ultimately. This is talking about those people in, in Macedonia, the Philippians and those other guys who had promised to give money to Jerusalem and he's trying to get the people in Corinth to give good based on the example that the Macedonians were giving. He said, I bear them witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Look at verse 4. Imploring us with much urgency that, they would, that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul said they gave more than they could give. And it's almost like Paul was saying, look, you guys don't need to give that much. And the Macedonians were begging them to take the stuff. They were saying, no, 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 please take this stuff. Imploring us with much urgency to take the stuff they were offering. So Paul says they gave beyond their ability. Kind of looks like Paul was saying, you guys are giving too much. And the Macedonians were saying, no, please take this. What kind of people begs somebody to take money that they're giving them even when they're giving beyond their own ability. Who does that? Here's what the text says. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord. And then to us by the will of God. Do you know the only way anybody ever really ultimately is the kind of giver that God wants is if they give themselves to the Lord. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. And how you deal with the money He entrusts you is something that shows whether or not you've given yourself to God. You know, several years ago, I read this illustration. In Africa, there was a tribe where there had been some type of natural disaster in this particular village. 
and they were going through some real hardships. They didn't have food. They didn't have the stuff that they needed. And so this other village over here said, we're going to take up basically a collection to get it to this village that needs help. And so they drew a big circle in the middle of the village and they said, hey, anything that you've got that you want to give to that other village to help them out of this natural disaster, just bring it and put it in the circle. And several people from that village were bringing chickens and they were bringing building supplies and all kinds of things. And there was this one young man who was watching this situation and desperately wanting to be a part of what was going on, but from a financial situation, he just didn't have anything that he could give them. And as all of these things were being collected and they were about to go to the village, finally, as he had watched so long, these people bringing stuff and not being able to do that, he stepped over the line of that circle and said, I don't have any financial things I can give. I don't have anything that will physically help them, but, but I can give myself. I can go work and help them and do everything that I know to do to make their lives better. Do you know what God has always wanted from you? Uh, your money is it's incidental. What God wants is you to step in the circle and say, God, you, you've got everything. You've got all of me. You've got my time. You've got what I do in relation to teaching my kids or how I interact with my friends at school. Money is incidental. I'm all in. Are you all in with God? Because ultimately that's what He wants. And ultimately that's what will make you the richest. When Jesus Christ gave everything He had and became, rich, became poor so that you can become rich, when you're all in... You have those spiritual blessings that nobody else in the world has except those people who have stepped in the circle. Have you obeyed the plan of salvation to be added to the Lord's church, repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, recognizing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, being willing to say that publicly and let everybody know that's whose side you're on? Are you all in for God? If you're not today, don't go away sad. Don't go by grieve because you have great financial blessings. Put yourself all in and say, God, everything I've got is yours. You just tell me what you want. And I guarantee you, when you prove God, you will never be disappointed. Do you need to respond to the Lord's invitation? I hope you will. If you do, as we stand and as we sing.